We're going to be looking at 42 through 47. And we're going to read this scripture together, and then I'm going to try to uh, tie it together in our minds a little bit. So 42 through 47 in Acts chapter 2 says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Before I pray, Nick, will you go cut that heat off for me? Thank you. Uh, let's pray together over the scripture. Father, we love you. We thank you. We glorify you. God, we thank you for the scripture. And we thank you for um, what seems extremely ordinary. God, very basic realities pointing to uh, and an amazing work that you were doing in the life of the people. My prayer this morning is we would see in this very simply that you're a God that saves, but you're a God who saves in very ordinary ways, which is still a very extraordinary thing. We love you and we thank you. In your son's holy name, amen. So what we're going to look at this morning, as the screen says behind me, ordinary means. Uh, and what I mean by that is very simply uh, ordinary ways in which God does his work, okay? Um, and so, but the word ordinary is an odd word. It is one uh, that is very, and really just extremely relative to the individual. Uh, a very just pointed example of this, speaking of my own life, is an ordinary week for me looks like working Monday through Saturday to the point of I know exactly I'm going to work Monday, Wednesday, thir- Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Eight, uh, 7 o'clock to 4.30. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to work from 7 o'clock to 9 a.m. And then Saturday, I'm going to work from 6 to 10 a.m. Right, ordinary, right? I know what that's going to look like. I know I'm also going to spend much time prepping for sermons and various other tasks for the church. Uh, outside of that, I'm going to not do my best with this. Mainly my wife does this. But I'm going to help in some ways get the kids ready for school. If it be dropping to or off or getting the boys to the end of the road, to be picked up by the bus. At some point in the week, most weeks, Sarah and I are going to find some kind of date together. Uh, most of the time, that's Mexican over uh, our kitchen table after the kids go to bed because we've got four kids. We have church on Sunday, community group on Sunday nights. I'm going to meet with one to three individuals for one-on-one discipleship and then meeting other pastors and things within the area from week to week. See, the reality here is my ordinary week does not look like your ordinary week. Your ordinary week does not look like mine or anyone else's in this room, most likely. Um, An ordinary week for all of us is going to look different in some ways or another. So the word ordinary is one that is relative, but it is one that is important. See, what makes it a reality of this morning's text so impactful is that we don't have to seek anything extraordinary or extravagant to be a devoted follower of Jesus or even a relevant church. We simply commit to the rest of our lives an ordinary means of discipleship. And so we're going to look at that this morning. 
But to catch you up, in case you haven't been here, or in case you just just to understand where we at in the book of Acts, because we started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we've made our way to the end of chapter 2 now. Verses 1 through 5 in chapter 1, we looked at this promise of the Holy Spirit. And then, then 6 through 11, Jesus ascends back into heaven. Then chapter 1, 12 through 26, we see this moment in which the disciples... Um, replace Judas as a disciple since he has now hung himself. They replace him with Matthias. Then in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 12, we see this moment that was long awaited for of the falling of the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we looked at Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And at the end of that, if you would look at verse 41 with me, it says this these words. So those who received... His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So at the accumulation of this sermon, at the end of this sermon, there were many who walked away in unbelief, but there were many who walked away with belief. Around 3,000 souls is what the scripture tells us. And so 3,000 individuals at the end of Peter's sermon come to know Christ, which gets us to verse 42. Which is very natural, right? Last few words of verse 41 leads into verse 42. And it says this, And they. And they. See, when looking at these first few words or, or set of scripture this morning, what it's talking about is those 3,000 individuals who had come to know Christ. They were gathering together. This is extremely scary in my mindset. Because if you look in this room, there's nowhere near 3,000 individuals. And as a planter of a church, if 3,000 people come to know Christ tomorrow, I would be, or today, I would be ecstatic. Certainly, right? But I would also be scared in many ways. Because how do you disciple that many people? How do you lead that many people? How do you even lead 15 or 20 in a way that is God-honoring? In this morning's text, we're going to see it's not as difficult and hard as we often make it to be. Is something very simple. But what I want us to see first and foremost is that this is a significant set of words here. It says, and they. Why is this significant? Because these are a group of people, 3,000 of them, that had come to this realization that God is the creator of the world. He is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. They were aware of their sin. They're in Jerusalem because they were there for a Jewish festival called the Festival of the Weeks. So it was this moment where they looked back on the life of their forefathers, recognizing God's provisions for them. But what they really ultimately realized in this moment was that Jesus was who he said he was. He was the Messiah, the King of the heavens and the earth that had come, that took on flesh to die upon the cross, to be laid in the tomb, and rising again, he conquered sin, death, and the grave. See, these individuals on that day, they come to trust in Jesus. This is a huge moment for them. This is an important moment for them. And for us who are believers, we can possibly think back to a moment like this or moments like this after we had come to know Christ where we were now asking the question of what's next. I think this morning's text answer that's for us. What about that individual that is baptized and that has trusted in Jesus? What are we to do with them? 
What are they to do with 3,000 individuals that had come to know Christ in just a moment? What I want us to see very simply is ordinary means in which they were discipled. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't sophisticated. It wasn't this detailed outline of how to walk through this. They were discipled in very simple and ordinary ways. Let's look at that together. Starting in verse 42. I'm going to jump around a little bit and just read pieces of these verses together. In 42, it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Okay, But then look at verse, 40, verse 46. Attending the temple. Verse 46, keeping on going, breaking of breads in homes. Verse 47, praising God. We have this form of New Testament and the Old Testament, right? They were gathered together. They were devoting themselves, what? Primarily to the apostles' teaching. What does that even mean, though? It's that they were devoting themselves to the Word of God, God's Word. Uh, this was words, that the teaching of the apostles were the teachings from Christ himself. That Christ had spent three years with these men and he had poured his life into them. He had taught them, he had developed them, he had discipled them. Put the bottle down, buddy. Thank you. He had discipled them, he had poured into them. He, he, he taught them the truths of the word of God. And so these 3,000 individuals, what do they do in this moment? They devote themselves first and foremost to the teaching and the preaching of God's word by these men. About 12 of them, right? They're devoted to this. They're committed to this. This is something they're making a priority in their life. And though it may be very easy to say, well, we don't have the apostles with us. We don't have them standing with us, teaching us. And I'm certainly not an apostle. I'm not a prophet. I'm nothing of those categories, right? Those things ceased in the book of Acts. But what I am is a preacher of God's word. What David and, uh, David and Troy are, our elders that teach and preach God's word. What we do in community groups is circle around together and show that it doesn't take someone teaching us the word of God, that we can chop it up and digest it ourselves after one's been proclaimed. See, we can do the same thing they did here, but we do it in the context of Scripture. That we have the teaching of the apostles, we have the teachings of the disciples here in the setting of the New Testament. But not only that, but we have the entire Old Testament that points us to Jesus. They devoted themselves to the teaching of God's Word. It was something they made a priority, seeing that they attended the temples together. They were breaking bread in their homes together. This was something they were committed to. It wasn't something they simply did once a week and then went on with their business. This was something they made a priority day in and day out in some capacity or another. I think the application for us is simple in that. And I think it comes threefolded. First and foremost, it's that we commit to the personal time in God's word. I'm going to give you a little trade secret here. Is nowhere in scripture is it going to tell you you have to read the Bible every day. Right? I mean, there's nowhere. You know why? Because most people didn't have copies of the Bible when the Bible was written. But the reality here is if we know this to be God's word to us, this is how God communicates to us, this is how God speaks to us, 
This is how he pours into our life through written word. Regardless if it's a mandate of scripture or not, this should be something we're compelled to do by the transformation of the gospel in our life. And so what I would encourage us first and foremost, before I get to the other two things that I think are a little more important, and I think scripture are clear about and calls us to, is that we would make reading God's word a priority in our lives. Some people are different than others. This for some, this may mean that you would wake up earlier to pour in to God's word in the morning before anyone else is awake or the house is quiet. That's not me. I'm not getting up earlier to do that. I will not take in anything. But for me, it may be, and for others like me, it may mean going to bed a little bit later or putting down the, the remote control or maybe removing a time of workout or whatever the case may be to allow God's word to pour into our lives. This may seem sacrilegious to some, but this means scheduling your time in the word of God. There's times in our life that we get very, very busy. And if things are not on a schedule, then we will not do it. I'm that person to the point to where every practice that our kids have for their sporting events to every date or every meeting, it's all in a schedule. That's why I text the people I meet with a week prior most of the time and say, hey, when do you want to meet this week? doesn't work good with those that are in the Air Force, though. Y'all know what your schedule's like, right? Um, schedule this. Make it a priority. Listen, listen to it being read to you. There's, there's no reason why in a commute to work we cannot have God's Word being read out loud through all the various technologies we have. Seek a plan to aid you in reading it. We've been walking through Scripture together this, since October of this year as a church. And if you don't have a plan, I would, I would just invite you to join us. You may not start in chapter 1 of Genesis, but you can start in, we're in the middle of 1 Samuel right now. So you can start in the middle of 1 Samuel with us, and we can catch you up. And then simply an encouragement to all of this is you make personal time in God's Word a priority is don't be discouraged. You're not going to be perfect in committing your personal time in God's Word. Though I think reading Scripture daily is an important aspect and one we should strive to, there's certainly moments where you will not do that. That's not a reason to fall deeper into that hole, but that's a reason to lean into God the next day even greater. The second way I think this is applicable to our lives is that we would be committed to a moment like this. We would be committed to gathering with God's people on a Sunday gathering because this is culturally how we do it here in the South, right? That you would gather together on Sundays, if not Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, or another time of the week to hear God's Word being preached. There's a difference of God's words being preached and God's word being taught. Preaching of God's word is an explanation of God's word in a way that is calling us to something higher while there is little uh, interaction of the people. There's nothing wrong with the next. We're going to cover that in just a second. But committing to this moment, hearing God's word preached is something that we see time in and time out in Scripture. Actually, we just saw it last week in Peter, Peter preaching God's word. He quoted two scriptures in Psalms and he quoted another in uh, Malachi, I believe. See, the reality is committing to God's word being preached weekly is a way that we commit to God's word. The third, though, is the teaching of God's Word. And this comes in various forms. 
This could come in community groups like we'll have tonight. This could be coming in uh, the form of Bible studies that you or others may have in their homes and you gather with them. This could be with one-on-one discipleship. This could be a group of men gathering, a group of women gathering to study God's Word together. The teaching of God's Word is where we then come together and we sharpen one another with the truth of Scripture. The reality here, I think, is very simple, and we're going to move on to the next, is that we should be committing to the the teaching of God's Word. Why? Because it's the first ordinary means of discipleship that we have. The first thing they say here, the first thing they do, is they commit to the teaching of God's Word. Because this is how God teaches us and transforms our lives. Second thing, though, as you see on the screen, uh, is biblical community. Uh, biblical community is crucial. This is, we're not as individuals, we're not created to be islands, we're not created to be separated, but rather we're created to be together. That when we're saved into Christ, it is certainly a personal experience where God redeems and saves our soul but it's most definitely a moment in which we're saved into a body of believers to to lean into and to trust one another, to teach and to develop us, to guide us. We see them doing this in this text here. So how do we see that? What do I mean by biblical community? I mean two things here. First and foremost, fellowship, which is a word in this culture that gets misused so much, but fellowship. And the second one is breaking of bread. Fellowship. And breaking of bread. And what I want to pause and say about this idea of biblical community that we see in Acts 44 and 45 and 46 is why our community groups look the way they do. It's why we gather, and we're still working some of the kinks out here, it's why we gather for the teaching of God's Word first and foremost, and then prayer following that, and then a meal together. It's because this is a way that we're trying to live out the same things that the early church did after 3,000 individuals come to know Christ. So, first and foremost, the idea of fellowship. Look at verse 44. Verse 44 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Because of Christ, the common bond of true salvation, these believers had everything that mattered in common. This didn't mean that they had everything in agreement or they thought the same way. We can look at the 12 disciples and understand very basically they didn't have everything in common. And then we can look in this room and see not all of us have everything in common. Some of you guys are going through pilot training. Some One of you in the room now is an instructor. Some of you guys are in second grade and third grade. And back there we got some in kindergarten and pre-K We've got a 13-year-old that's in seventh grade. We've got someone that works from home, someone that stays home with their children, somebody that works in a lumber yard, somebody that works in a post office. We certainly, if we chopped it up to sporting events or hobbies, if we asked political views, we would also, we would just see that not everything that we're in common in, right? We're going to differ in thoughts and opinions. The same thing here. He's not saying they agreed or everything was in common. We're saying the thing that mattered the most they had in common, and that was Christ. That nothing else mattered because the one whom they centered their life around is the one who was of utmost importance, and that was Jesus. 
So fellowshipping together should look like a bunch of different people coming together under the umbrella of who Christ is, regardless of their, their, their divisions and separation on all of these other matters. Very simply, I would argue that even when you look in, math, in Revelation chapter 7, that there's a moment where there's people that look totally different, that came from different walks of life, that are come together and they're going to sing together and they're going to glorify God together. And though they also did not have everything in common in the sense that we may often think of, they had the one thing in common that mattered. Biblical community should look like community that is made up of people that live different lives, that talk different, act different, and think different. Because if we're not doing those things, we're not reaching everyone we could be reaching. Verse 45, though, we see that biblical community goes beyond having things in common. Verse 45 says, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to all as any had need. This is a verse that can either be taken and run and ran way too far with and even argued uh, for a certain way of living life. And what I mean by that is very simply, I do not believe that verse 45 is speaking of communism or anything that would be into that category of political life. What we see going on here is a group of people that came together and they had brothers and sisters in Christ now bound together by something greater than anything else in life and seeing brothers and sisters in Christ having need and struggles and problems and what they decide to do to fight against that and to provide for those who they cared for and loved dearly was when there was excess in their life, when there was ways that they were living above their means, when there was ways in which they could, they would sell what they had and they would give it to anybody in need. This wasn't a group of people that sold everything they had and then lived on a commune together as some cult or anything of that nature. This is a group of people that saw one another in needs and did what it took to provide for them. Very simple way I think we can understand this. In this same time, about 30 years later, there would have been moments where Christians would begin to be crucified. They would begin to be persecuted for their faith. Saul, a.k.a. Paul, would have been a perfect example of this happening in the life of Stephen around chapter 8. But not only in that, we saw there's moments when this individual named Nero is going to come on the scene around A.D. 60 to A.D. 80. And what he's going to begin to do is kill Christians. One of the popular ways was to take a, uh, an animal carcass and gut it and then wrap it around the living individual and then allow a lion to devour both the animal carcass and the person inside of it. And what would happen, though, is if these were men and women that have children, their children would be taken and they would be placed by the dump to die. And one of the biggest ways we see this living out in the early church later is they would take those children and they would bring them into their home and they would provide for them. When Christian community comes together, I would argue that we cannot live in excess when our brothers in Christ have, and sisters in Christ have needs that are greater than their own ability to, to provide for them. This is what it meant, that when their brother and sister in Christ hurt, they hurt to the point that it caused something in them to do something about it. 
Biblical community is one that transforms all that are a part of it. Then verse 46. They're gathered, as we saw, they're in fellowship with one another. They're gathering with one another. 46 gets a very specific way that they did it. Look at it together. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together. I'm going to pause there. They didn't have a church like we have. And so they would gather in the temple. Um, we actually just read this in the book of Acts. And I really wish I were, would have... Uh, I wish I would have marked it in this Bible, but there was a place specifically where they gathered, and it's a corridor, and they would gather there, and they would teach the Word of God there for Christians. So they're gathering in a Jewish temple, teaching the Word of God to Christians, because they don't have a physical location. But not only that, but they also did something else. And this is what I want to spend time on. It says, in breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were breaking bread in homes. I would argue that when we see this often in Scripture, it's talking about taking communion. It's certainly they would have done this in some capacity or another uh, in these homes together because this was when they were gathering together as body of believers. Um, but the primary thing is that they were gathering together, breaking bread in their homes. They were eating meals together. And what I want to present here very basically is there is nothing more mundane than rubbing elbows with one another and eating together. Like, for example, uh, raise your hand if you ate breakfast this morning. I didn't. I don't, I don't eat breakfast before Sunday mornings. Standing up here for 45 minutes, just, yeah. But anyway, so I, don't, I just don't. But did you think about eating breakfast or did you just wake up, go in the kitchen, start fixing your food or run through a drive through did you think about it or did it just kind of happen? No, right? Most of us, when we get up to eat, we're like, man, I'm, my stomach's growling. I'm, I'm kind of hungry. Let's, let's get some food. It's very basic, mundane things. It's not something we think about. It's not something that we're scheduling in our life. It's not something we have to make ourselves do for the most cases. But it's something that is very, very ordinary. And it's something that is so significant in our lives. Because if we didn't participate in it, we would certainly die. Right? If you just quit eating tomorrow and you said, I'm never going to eat again, you would eventually not eat again or you would eat again. Right? You're either going to die of that or you're going to eat again. Ordinary mean of breaking bread in homes is so simple, but I would argue that it's the best way of building biblical community together. Having people in your home that don't have kids or do have kids having meals together, seeing family traditions over the table, talking of Scripture, talking about life, seeing those things, participating in those things in the life of the people around you is so, so significant. So my application here is very, very, very simple. One, I would encourage you first and foremost to come next Sunday as we eat together as a church. We do this in community groups every Sunday night. You can come tonight and join us. You can come next Sunday and join us in that. I think it's wonderful, but it's something about being in somebody's home together. So my encouragement to you, my charge to you per se, is not only that, but invite someone into your home this week and have meals with them. Or invite them to dinner at the restaurant and have meals with them. But I want to say this, kind of going back to the fellowship is we are called to help our brothers and sisters in Christ in time of needs. Emotionally, physically, whatever they need in life, we are called to help them, right? 
But I think too often, myself first and primary here, is that what we need to do is not only help others, but drop our pride and allow others to help us in difficult times. I'm not the type where I want anyone to help me with things other than things I just simply cannot do my own, by my own. But emotionally, physically, it's not easy for me to open up and ask for help in ways that I am overly confident or comfortable in, even when I think I can do it and I know I really can't. But the early church, the only way they were able to provide for one another is because the other people were receptive of the gifts of the people around them. So it goes both ways. So I would encourage you, as you find time of need, do not be slow to ask those people that are a part of Redeemer to help you with it. And then on the same side, invite somebody into your home this week. Invite somebody into a meal together. That was the second ordinary means of discipleship. Committing to God's word, committing to biblical community, and then the third one is prayer. Um, I want to invite you, um, as we get into this, first and foremost, after community group tonight, we're going to spend time in prayer together. Next Sunday at 8.30, we're going to pray together then in that room back there on the left. Or if you come in on the right, um, we're going to gather and pray together. And let's see why, though. Looking at verses 46 and 47. The end of 46, after it says, Breaking breads in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day. But look at the end of verse 42. And I'm gonna, there's a reason why I'm reading that other first. It says, Breaking of bread and the prayers. See, if you look in this, they did various things. They gathered together in the temple. They gathered together in homes. They sat under the teaching of God's word together. They broke bread together. And what I would argue in this is that just like teaching and fellowship was at the center of what they were doing, so was prayer. So in every aspect of the church's life, if it be eating together or gathering in the temple together or gathering homes together, prayer was something they made a priority in their lives and in the church's life. This was something they were committed to. This was something of significance to them. We saw this even early on in the book of Acts. Starting in chapter 1, the first thing they did after Christ ascends into heaven was they met together in the upper room committing to praying together. And now just because the Holy Spirit has come and has dwelt them does not mean that they did not continue to that same practice of prayer It was at the center of who and what they were, not only as individuals, but as a church. But if we're going to be completely honest, the teaching of God's word, we can do that easily. We've got that. We come, we listen to a 45-minute sermon once a week. We may read scripture by ourselves. We may even listen to a podcast or a sermon on YouTube. We've got that knocked out. Gathering together, certainly, yeah, I'm going to, I have no problem going to somebody else's house to eat their food for free. There's no problem there. I'm down for that. But how often do we make prayer a priority in our lives, in the lives of our homes, in the lives of our church? Because this is the hard one. Often when you pray, it may even seem like you close your eyes and you're speaking words And that you're talking to the room. Maybe when you pray, you pray and you feel as if you have to do it in a certain caliber 
so that you're afraid to do it in an open-minded way, in a heartfelt way. See, there's so many difficulties and hardships that come with prayer because it's something that we just don't naturally do in our lives. But I would argue that it has to be the center of who we are. So the application here is very simple. It's find time to pray as an individual, as families, and even in friend groups. One big way I think is a really easy time to pray, depending on your commute. If you're Micah and you live you know, a few minutes from your job, it may not be the same. The car rides. Cut the podcast off, cut the music off, tune out the kids, let them scream. It's good. Pray. Talk to God in those moments. Now I'm talking to James first. I listen to about 50, 60 podcasts a week, okay? I, I, I listen to a lot of things. So often it's hard for me to cut it off and just pray. Showers while doing the dishes. Take the ordinary mundane things that you have to do in your life and add it to the list of prayer. To take the thing that you often do without even realizing and praying to God in those moments and thanking Him for them. Find aids that will help you in this. There's a prayer. There's a, there's a lot of methods out there. I'd be happy to point you to a few uh, that will help you pray that are more systematic and thoughtful. Uh, helps you kind of get a, an idea of prayer without rambling on and on and on. But the point being very simple here is pray to God. So the ordinary means committing to God's word, biblical community, and prayer. This is what the early church did. But let's see what happens out of it. Go to the next slide. Ordinary means of discipleship. So the next slide. If not, I'll just say it. Yeah, keep going. Yours. Yeah. Um, verse, four, verse 47, the last part of it. The last thing I want us to see this morning is that God uses ordinary means to do the extraordinary work of salvation. Now, I want to not be ignorant to the fact that when you look at verse 43, this is an all came upon every soul. I mean, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So certainly there was amazing things going on. We see Peter causing a, uh, through the name of Christ, the layman walking. We see a very, very amazing things. Let's not ignore those things, but let's see how the author is writing this, how Luke is writing this. He isn't emphasizing those amazing things, but he's emphasizing what they did that was ordinary. There's one verse that says they did extraordinary things. They did these miraculous things, but there's six verses that cover the ordinary things they did. So the one that was more important, the one that was more significant in this moment wasn't this amazing things, but it was the simple things. And what did the simple things do? At the end of verse 47, and the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. See, these are the 3,000 gathered with the disciples, committing to the preaching and teaching of God's word, to biblical community, to prayer. And each and every day as they were doing this, what was the outcome of that is other people were coming to know Christ and be trusting in him. The outcome of ordinary discipleship and ordinary means of grace is that people come to know Jesus in our lives.
it begins in verse 47. He says the words, having favor with all people. Now, to be clear, I did say earlier that there's a moment where this guy named Nero enters the scene and people begin to kill Christians. But even before that, there's a man named Saul that enters the scene that begins to kill Christians. So certainly, they did not have favor with everyone in the political sense of the way. So just because they make statements like this in Scripture doesn't mean that all means all. It just means they had favor with people. So let's not overthink it. Let's look at it very basically. The people of faith community had favor with those around them. Why did they have favor with those around them? Because people that have been transformed by the gospel live good and holy lives. And what I mean by that, not that they're, in, not that they're perfect or they're without error or they're without sin, but they're people that are conscious of their decisions they make. The people that have been transformed by Christ, certainly they're going to have moments of weakness where they may cut someone off in traffic or they may use some sign language they should not. Or they may even use language or moments in life where they may get mad or angry or upset. Moments where they have to apologize to the children they're raising. Moments where they may do something of significance that hurts someone else. There's certainly the reality there because we're sinful, broken people. People that have been transformed by the gospel or people that have different lives they now live. That it's now uncharacteristic of them to live in those same ways. And so when it says they had favor with all people, it's saying, look, these people love God and love neighbor. The greatest of the commandments. So the application here, I want you to hear me, Christian, as one that has been forgiven of your sin, contrary to the judgment that you and I deserve, you and I should not be known as cheap tippers, very basic here, bad employees, angry drivers. This may not apply to everyone in the room, but that dad or that mom at the sporting events, the bad student or the neglectful parent, if we have been marked with the gospel, we are to live like we have. So not only did the Lord give them favor as they were committing to the ordinary means of discipleship. Thank you. We'll clean it up in a minute. But the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I don't want us to wrongly understand what is going on here. God was not saving people daily simply because his people were doing all the right things. This isn't a formula that you can plug in and God's miraculously going to work. This isn't, a, um, this isn't a pyramid scheme that if we do this, this, and this, that we're going to save this many people, right? Or if you watch The Office, it's not a pyramid. It's an upside-down triangle. Um, anyway, um, it's, it's not as if this is how that works. But if we are people that are committing to God's word, that are committing to fellowship with one another and committing to prayer, then that's going to transform the way that we live our lives. And so we're now going to live as people on mission. See, the reality here is that God uses his church to save people and his church should be committing to the ordinary means of discipleship corporately and individually so that God can work in our lives. Very simple here. 
Love people by treating them good and sharing the gospel with them. And then trust God to save them. See, they had favor with people because they treated people well. But because of what God was giving them, he was giving them a number being saved day by day. He was saving them. We do not save anyone. Our good deeds do not save anyone. Our gospel presentations are not crisp enough where it's certain that they have to believe in Jesus. God is the one that redeems souls and he adds to their numbers. And he will certainly add to ours. So as we come to a close this morning, as Troy comes and leads us in this last song, I want us just to understand very quickly one more thing about all of this. Is that God's ordinary means of discipleship are God's word, biblical community, and prayer, and that he uses these ordinary things to do the extraordinary work of salvation. But as in an individual, how does this apply overall? And I want to say this as pastorally as I can. Do not, do not trust in extra extravagant or over-spiritual practices to make us feel closer or secure in our salvation. Rather, rest in the salvation that Jesus has brought, bought for you while we trust in God is going to sanctify us through the ordinary means of discipleship. You don't have to do these miraculous works and deeds to feel affirmed in your salvation. You're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And as a church, new church, growing church, prayerful church, let's not place worship services, programs, or special events as a place that it should not be. Let's place these ordinary means of discipleship as a priority in our lives as we trust that God will save those that he places in our lives going to read 42 and 47 one more time it says and they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer praising God and having favor with all people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved redeemer let us be known as those who have devoted ourselves to God's word biblical community and prayer and let me ask this question are we truly trusting that God will work in and through them to bring lost souls. God desires to save people. He desires to use his church to save people. And we are a part of his church. Let's pray.